0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. In recent years, there have been some stories reported of high-profile people who once professed faith in Jesus Christ but now no longer identify as Christians. Uh, And some of these folks were rather prominent pastors at one time, or Christian writers, or maybe they were involved in Christian music. In fact, somebody here a couple of years ago came to me and was distraught because a book that that she loved was written by a a, a pastor who publicly... uh, Came out as no longer identifying as a Christian, and maybe you know people in your circle of friends or families who once professed faith in Christ publicly, but now they've walked away. And it's it's painful, uh, to say the least, to to see something like this. Well, today is Christ the King Sunday. This is a day that we celebrate and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed King. And I want to talk to you today about why we should stay loyal to Christ, our King. Even when we hear these stories of others who may be walking away, even as we live in a culture where there's not so much an incentive anymore to identify as a Christian. And maybe you would say, well, I just can't ever imagine, and I hope you would say this, I can't ever imagine uh, a, a time when I would not confess Christ. I can't imagine abandoning Christ. But uh, I think we can all acknowledge that we go through seasons where our devotion to Christ can slacken. Our devotion to Christ can diminish, and our hearts are prone to wonder. And so we need to meditate on the truth of Jesus to bind our hearts closer to Him and to increase our loyalty to Him. And what I want to do today is just simply walk you through what Paul the Apostle says in his letter to the Colossians. And I encourage you to take that out. It's on page 9 in your bulletin or in the few Bibles or in your own Bible. Because... Paul is writing to a church that is tempted to give up on faith in Jesus Christ. And throughout this letter, he is calling them to hold fast, to hold steady, to not swerve from the hope of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ, that they have already learned. He's praying for their endurance. He is challenging them to persevere doesn't want them to shift away from the hope they have in Jesus Christ. Really, I want to zero in on uh, this beautiful, majestic passage in verses uh, 15 through 20. Some scholars believe that maybe Paul is reciting a, a hymn or a version of a Christian hymn that was known to the early Christians. Because this is written in such poetic form. Um, Perhaps he's just under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, writing with heightened eloquence as he meditates on the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to point out here. The greatness of Jesus' person and the greatness of Jesus' work. The more we understand who Jesus is and what he's done, the more we will... Bind ourselves to him in devotion and loyalty to our king. So let's talk about that. Let's look at what Paul says about the greatness of Jesus first his person. And he talks about Jesus's relationship to God. You see that right there at the beginning of verse 15. He is the image or icon. That's the word there of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to see what the invisible God looks like, look to Jesus. And there you will see God incarnate, God in the flesh, the image of the invisible God. You do not have to guess, you do not have to speculate what God is like. You can humbly receive the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. And then you can skip down to verse 19 and and you see, again, he's speaking on the relationship between Christ and God. When he says in verse 19, for in him that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And later he'll go on and say all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. In other words, Jesus is fully divine. There is no part of Jesus's nature. Or his being. There is no part of Jesus's nature that is less than God. He is God incarnate. Now, remember who Paul is. Remember what happened to Paul. Paul had this supernatural encounter with the risen Christ. On the road to Damascus. He was blinded by the light of Jesus. He heard the voice of Jesus. And this changed Paul's life forever. It changed his mission in life. Before Damascus, he said, Jesus is a hoax. After Damascus, he writes things like this. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is divine. The encounter with the risen Christ changed. Paul's life and called him to write things like this. What this means for us is that we do not need to look to any other religion or spirituality or any other religious figure. We don't need any sort of spiritual supplement or practice to get closer to God. If we are Christians, we have all we need In Jesus, all the spiritual wisdom that we need, all the spiritual power that we need, the comfort, the encouragement, the peace. It's all in Jesus because all of God is in Jesus. One of the temptations that the Colossians were facing was precisely that they were tempted to worship or practice spirituality that was not related to Jesus. There were teachers who were coming into this church, or maybe they had been part of this church. And they were beginning to promote other spiritual practices, such as the worship of angelic beings, which was popular in this first century context. And we know that because Paul warns against that in chapter two in verse 18. He says to them, "Uh, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going around and puffing up, uh, or rather, going in detail about visions and puffing themselves up without reason by their sensuous minds. So there were people who were saying things like, you know, it, Jesus is fine, but if you really want to have a deeper experience, if you really want to have a more mystical, spiritual experience, then let me introduce you to angel worship. And the idea was that there were these Gradations. There was this hierarchy of angelic powers that you kind of had to go through in order to get to God, like steps on a ladder. And again, some of the spirituality was popular in the first century context. And Paul says, no. You have Jesus. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. I think what this means for us today is that we have to be very discerning. We have to watch out for these vogue spiritualities that would encourage us to turn our eyes from Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, for peace, for harmony, for healing. We have to be careful. We have to be discerning about Eastern style religions, self-help gurus, new age mysticism, meditation techniques. What are they telling you about where to find your source of peace and healing and hope? All that we need is in Jesus Christ. And Paul is warning the Colossians not to go down this road. Jesus is fully God. Then Paul writes about Jesus' relationship to creation. He says, in verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. That, that doesn't mean that Jesus was a creature. It's not like saying grace is Ben's firstborn. When Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's saying he has the first place in all creation. He is preeminent in all creation. In those days, in ancient cultures, And in traditional societies, even today, the firstborn, particularly the firstborn son, has a place of prominence in the family. The firstborn son inherits the property. The firstborn of the king has the right to the throne. And so Jesus has preeminence in all of creation. He is the firstborn. And then you look at verse 16. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Things that are visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And by the way, several scholars believe that those categories, those names, thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities are names for angelic beings. Rankings of spiritual angelic beings. So Paul is saying all things, even these angelic beings, were created through Christ or by Christ. And then he says, and for Christ. All created things are meant to glorify Christ. Let's just think a minute about Jesus as an agent of creation. We normally think of God the Father as the creator, and that's right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but We believe as Christians in the triune, eternal God. We believe in the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And every member of the Trinity was active in creation. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he references the Son of God as the agent of creation. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, Genesis tells us. And here Paul says that Christ, the eternal Son of God, was an agent in creation as well. It's remarkable to think that it all belongs to Jesus and it's all for Jesus, for the glory of Christ. All of it. All of creation. It's mind-boggling. I did a little research. My, My son has been taking an astronomy class at school. He's been sharing some amazing facts about the nature of the universe and reminding me of things and teaching me things like there are billions of galaxies in this universe. Billions. Some say maybe over 200 billion galaxies. Our little galaxy, the Milky Way, is just this tiny little dot in this vast expanse of the universe. And as tiny as it is compared to the rest of the universe, it still would take us 200,000 years traveling at the speed of light to get across our little galaxy. That's the immensity of the universe. It's difficult to comprehend. Paul says all of this was made through Christ and for Christ. It was meant to glorify Jesus. Each galaxy... Each grain of sand. Every newborn baby. The babies that we welcomed into the world this past week as a church. Your dog. Or for your cat people. I hate to bring it up. There are people who love cats. The dog, the cat, all of it. Made to glorify Jesus Christ. And none of it exists apart from Christ. He, he sustains all things. You know, when you drive past a, a mansion or maybe a great estate, what pops into your mind? I often think, who in the world owns something like that? What kind of person can afford something like that? And then you begin to think about greatness in worldly terms. Must be a very wealthy, powerful person. Paul says the universe belongs to Christ. Not only are all things created through Christ and for Christ, but Paul says he holds it all together. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's saying without Christ, creation would fall apart. We often think of God as the creator, which again is right. But God is also the sustainer of creation. Created matter has no will of its own. It's just there. Has no power, has no intelligence, no will of its own. God is behind creation. Everything that exists, exists because God wills it. And God sustains creation. God ordered creation and structured its laws, but God continues by His will to sustain it. And apart from the power of God, creation would collapse. And Paul says Christ is in that role somehow of sustaining creation itself. I came across an analogy that might be helpful Somebody said God's relationship to creation is not like you start the car and then once you get on the highway, you press cruise control and you don't have to make contact with the gas pedal anymore. Just kind of getting it going. Rather, God's relationship to creation is more like driving the car without cruise control. You have to keep constant contact with the gas pedal to keep it going. God is constantly sustaining creation by his will. He created. He sustains it. He holds it together. Christ is the center of it. This is all very kind of heady and abstract stuff. (coughs) We're dealing with like the cosmic (laughs) dimensions of Christ's person and power. But we can bring it down to the personal with a couple of questions. Here's some questions in light of the truth of, of Christ, of King Jesus. If He is really the sustainer of the universe, can you trust Him to sustain you and your life, and to sustain you even through death into His eternal presence. If He is the sustainer of the universe, can't you trust Him to sustain you? If Jesus is the one who holds everything together, if He is the center of all that exists and the goal of all that exists, if it's all for Him, to glorify Him, is He the center of our life? Is He the center of your life? And your family, does He give ultimate meaning to you? Is your life about glorifying this great King? And if not, then then you're going against the grain of reality. You're going against the, the true nature of things. Jesus is a great King. And He's supremely great. He's the Lord of creation. In him, the fullness of God dwells. And then Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church. This is another aspect of the greatness of Christ, that he is the head of not just our church, but every church that's meeting today throughout the world and every church that has ever met throughout the centuries. Christ is king. Christ is the head. The unique thing about us as Christians, as the church, is that we recognize the lordship of Christ. We recognize that he is king. The rest of the world does not, but there will come a day when they will see the reality of what Paul is talking about here. That Christ is the king. But for now, Christ rules his people. Christ rules the church through his word. He is the head of the church, which means that he's the authority or ought to be the authority of. Of every church and he rules his church through his word. And so in this church in Colossae, there were false teachers who were coming and teaching something other than what Christ taught. And Paul identifies them as promoting self-made religion. They were teaching, he says, human precepts and teachings. In other words, it was man-made. It wasn't from God. It wasn't from Christ. And instead, what they were teaching, rather than the gospel, was a form of legalism. And what does legalism say? In order to be right with God, you need to do X, Y, or Z. They came into the church and they said, okay, the stuff about Jesus is fine, but here's a list of things you need to do To make sure that you're right with God. That's legalism. Perform these rituals. Keep these rules. And you will be right with God. Legalism glorifies man's effort. It detracts from the glory of God. The gospel glorifies Christ. Because the gospel says. If you want to be right with God. You receive what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Self-made religion always veers into this realm of legalism and detracts from the glory that is due to God alone. So where Christ is the head, we live under his authority in matters of faith and practice. And he gets the glory. Glory. But headship does not just mean authority. It also means source of life and vitality. Here's an image. I apologize. It's a little gruesome on a beautiful Sunday morning to think about such things. But a headless body is a dead body. There's no vitality. There's no life. And in a spiritually dead body or a spiritually dead church. There is all sorts of corruption that can happen when the leaders and the people are not connected to Christ, who is the head, the source of spiritual vitality and life. What kind of things mark a church that is not connected to the head, that is not living under the authority of Christ or not allowing his life to flow through them? Well, Paul talks about some of these things in Colossians as you go on to read it and to study it. Things like divisions within the church and malice and envy among members and hatred and sensuality. All these attitudes, Paul says, are about the old life, but we have been brought into the new life through Jesus Christ. And where Christ is the head of the church, where leaders and the people in the church are loving Christ and following him in faith and repentance, His life is flowing. And in that church, Paul says you can expect these sorts of things. This is in chapter 3. In a church that is living under the headship of Christ and allowing the life of Christ to flow through them, people are forgiving one another, not holding things against one another. People are loving one another. People are, he says in chapter 3, singing psalms and singing hymns and spiritual psalms with thanksgiving. There's this overflow of praise. uh, All sorts of kinds of praise, but in chapter 3, he especially notes the role that singing can take place as we Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts towards God. It's interesting, I read that uh, in Buddhist temples and in Islamic gatherings, there's not a lot of singing that takes place. The author said this, There is no wonder of being forgiven. That's W O N D R. No wonder of being forgiven in Islam and in Buddhism. Why? Because it's all up to you. You get what you deserve in these religions. In Christianity, you get what you don't deserve. You get grace, you get forgiveness when that captures the hearts and minds of the people of God, there's going to be thanksgiving. There's going to be singing. There's going to be praise. When we're connected to Christ, who is the head of the church. Here's one other aspect of the greatness of Jesus' person. This is verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead. Again, this is referring to his prominence, his status. It's talking about Jesus's resurrection. He's the first human in, in history uh, to be resurrected. Others are going to follow. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Jesus was raised to a, a form of life that is greater than death, to a new form of life. And so Jesus's victory over death his resurrection. It's the beginning of this new form of life. It's the beginning of new creation. Jesus is great because he is the risen one. He is the risen one. And somebody said to me after the first service, there was one problem with your sermon. You were a little biased towards Christianity. (laughs) Probably right. That was meant tongue in cheek. Jesus is the risen one. There is no other risen one. He's the firstborn of creation. In him the fullness of God dwells. It's not that we can't respect. People of other religions. Of course not. But there's only one risen one. After writing so elegantly about Jesus's greatness. The greatness of his person. Paul talks about the greatness of his work. And just a little bit on this. Again. It's all built up. He builds up this majestic view of Jesus. And if all this is true, then Jesus is the greatest person in the universe. And now he talks about this person, the greatest person in the universe, his greatest work. And it doesn't happen on a throne in a palace. And it doesn't happen in the halls of political power. It doesn't happen while he's wielding a sword on a battlefield. It happens. His greatest work, the greatest work of the greatest person, happens on this hill outside of Jerusalem as he is hanging and dying on a cross. And his greatest work is this work of reconciliation. You see it there? Verse 20. (laughs) The one who is fully God gave himself to us in this way. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. That's his greatest work. Reconciliation. You know, those of us in families where there has been division, disunity, disharmony, it breaks our hearts. And we're praying for reconciliation in our families when there is that rupture, when there is that division. Because that's not the way family is supposed to be. Well, in, in a similar way, creation is not meant to be divided from its creator. Not meant to be alienated. We're not meant to be alienated from God. That's the reason we have all the problems that we have in this world. Because people are alienated from their loving Creator. And all of creation itself, Paul says, is groaning because of this state. Because of the corruption that's brought about by sin. But Jesus, by offering His perfect life, this this man who was fully God and man, He pays the price for reconciliation. He pays the price for us to be free and forgiven. The powers of the world that put Him on the cross thought that we've done away with Him now. This troublesome person, we can just forget about it. The powers of the world thought they were done with Jesus. The spiritual powers of darkness that were behind those powers of the world thought that they had triumphed over Him and were victorious over Him. But on the cross, as He was dying, He was triumphing over them. He was defeating them. They mocked him as the king of the Jews. The sign hung over his head. (laughs) But his work demonstrated. His death and resurrection that he truly is the king. And what Jesus won is the victory for those who are in him. The powers that oppose God have no claim over those who are declared forgiven. By the blood of Jesus. The power of death has no claim over those who share in the life of the risen Christ. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says to the penitent thief. The cross is this king's greatest work. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. A few years ago I, I went on a trip and sometimes i'll try to bring something back for the kids some mementos some knickknacks some souvenirs and so i went through this gift shop somewhere in indiana i think it was and it was one of those antique warehouses not a place to go when you're looking for like the perfect gift for kids i spent way too much time in these this warehouse i probably spent an hour looking through different things to find just the right gift But I came across this little wooden plaque and it was hand-painted and um, on it were three crosses. And just a real simple message, but it's so profoundly true. Three crosses and then underneath it just said, In my place. In my place. This great king did this for me. That's why I want to stay loyal to him. What about you? Amen. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to remain steadfast and not just. um, Sometimes we just can barely hang on, but sometimes you're calling us to grow deeper and to. Press in and to trust you more and to know you more. Some people here might be in, in the place of just barely hanging on. And I pray for them. I, I thank you that they're here today because that's a sign that you're at work in their life. And you're not going to let them go. And we need to hear the truth of your word. And we need to be with others. Others might be here, God, and they're just full, brim full of, of thanksgiving for your work in their life and Their faith is at a very high level and I pray for them, God, that You would um, help them to continue to live out a life of thanksgiving and witness to You. Wherever we find ourselves in relationship to You and, and, and wherever our faith level, so to speak, might be today. Help us all to recognize You as Christ the King and to follow You and to grow in You and to give You glory more and more in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.